Our passage today begins with the words, after this. And indeed, this concludes what has been a crazy few weeks for these disciples. Think about what has occurred in just the past two or three chapters of John. In case you weren't with us for those last few chapters, what has happened is there's been a Passover, one of the biggest meals, one of the biggest celebrations and festivals, not, not too unlike Thanksgiving. The biggest Jewish holidays of the year. And in this Jewish holiday, in the midst of it, at that final dinner, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, institutes the bread that is his body, and the wine that is his blood, that we may eat it and drink of it, so that we would remember him. Remember what? Well, remember the night that he was arrested, which happened that night. And upon being arrested, he was flogged, and he was sent to a criminal's cross. And he was crucified before a mob, a ravenous mob, who said, crucify him instead of Barabbas. And because it was a Passover, it was just this massive crowd, a massive mob, caught up in that mob mentality of uh, to kill this man who had done nothing wrong. And upon being crucified, he was buried in a rich man's grave. But three days later, or on the third day, I should say, he wasn't in that grave anymore because he had risen from that grave. He had resurrected. All in just a span of three days. And in the weeks following his resurrection, Jesus has appeared, not as some, not in some like ephemeral, like uh, ghost thing, but as a resurrected physical body. He has appeared before Mary, and he has appeared before the gathered disciples who are in locked rooms. And though he is physically resurrected, he has somehow gone past the locked doors into those rooms to meet these disciples. All this has happened in just a span of maybe two or three weeks. And we <clears throat> see in our passage today, after this, uh, Jesus reveals himself to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. The sea of Tiberias is just another way of saying the Sea of Galilee, which you might be familiar with hearing. And we see the disciples, seven of them to be exact, <clears throat> going back to Galilee, their hometown, Going back north, because Jerusalem's in the south, they go back home north, back to Bergen County, and they go back to normal. It's kind of like when Noah Shin over there watches The Office for the tenth time. <laughs> just like when we hold on to that thing, you know, we go to that restaurant, it's just it's familiar, it's comfortable, you know, we don't want to think about what to eat, so we're just going just gonna to talk to them. And they're going back home north, Galilee. And they're going back fishing in the Sea of Galilee, going back to their old job. Because for Peter and for the rest of the boys, that's familiar, that's comfortable. Especially after what has undoubtedly been the most mentally and spiritually and emotionally taxing few weeks of their lives. Imagine you were a disciple and you had to go through it. It's not like you had to, I mean, you went through it. This guy, you thought he was going to be the Messiah. He's the Messiah. He's going to 
He's gonna overthrow the Romans, and then oh, he, he's telling us to like remember him through the bread and the wine. Oh, why is he, remember what? Oh my gosh, he's getting flogged. Oh my gosh, he's being nailed to a cross. Oh my God, the tomb we buried him in, and he's not there anymore. Oh, he's right here. Imagine what, what that does to a man's mind and heart. And so, they, you know, maybe perhaps they go back like it's a it's a comforting mechanism. They go back to what they know. They go back to fishing. And it's in this context where they go back to what is familiar, what is known, and uh, almost like they forgot what they're, you know, they're disciples of the risen Christ. But they choose to go back fishing. And it's in this context that Jesus will appear to them again. He will reveal himself to them and he will commission them. He will give them a mission. He will give them a lifelong calling. Specifically, he will call and commission Peter in verses 15 and 19, and John in verses 20 and 24, which will be a passage for next week. Right? In the, in the midst of these disciples seemingly almost like running away, and most, you know, that's, maybe that's a little harsh, but they're kind of running away from their problems. And it's in that context that Jesus gives them their ultimate lifelong mission. And indeed, I don't know where we are today. For most of us who are in school, you know, they, they love sticking those midterms right before Thanksgiving, and so you're probably stressing the F, F out, right? You're, you're stressed out, or I don't know, maybe something's going on in your finances, or with your family, or whatever. And in the midst of life, because that's just, that's just life, right? Life happens in the midst of all of this chaos, and maybe you don't think of it as chaos, but just kind of the regularities of life, Jesus is still today commissioning us as his disciples, his followers, the ones who have put their faith and trust in him. Indeed, um, even though it's not part of our passage today, next week we'll talk about how Jesus commissions Peter and John, and in the same way he commissions us. And the way in which he does that, though, is how he commissions these disciples is going to be very useful for us to understand our commission, our calling as people who follow Jesus, as Christians. Because Jesus commissions his disciples in our passage today in three ways. Jesus commissions his disciples through his revelation, Jesus commissions his disciples in his power, and Jesus commissions his disciples with his fellowship. And so those are the three points of our sermon today. The first is this, Jesus' commission through Jesus' revelation. We see in our passage today that these disciples, the boys we call them, there's seven of them, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, who are James and John, plus two others. I don't know why he doesn't include their names, but whatever, they don't care. They, they don't matter. <laughs> because, um, yes, right, they're being back in Galilee. After all of this, after seeing what they have seen, and after seeing the empty tomb, after seeing the resurrected Christ himself, right, because most of them were in that room where Jesus appeared to them, not once, but twice, 
And yet they go back to Galilee. And that's odd. And their return to their normal, old way of life does not seem to align with the spirit-filled, mission-oriented, joyous life of the disciples that we see, for example, in Acts. Right? See, in Acts, the disciples, they pray fervently, and then they are imbued with the power of the Holy Spirit, and then they just go nuts trying to spread the gospel of Jesus. But we don't see that. We don't see that fervent energy to establish and expand the church. We see that some dudes just want to go back to fishing. And perhaps it's because, indeed, they have seen. They have seen the empty tomb. They have they've even seen Jesus. They don't really see. They don't really see what they're supposed to see. They don't really see what the point of all this is. They don't see what they're supposed to do now. Therefore, Jesus must reveal himself. Because they do not see, because right now they are blind to what this is all about, they are blind to what they're supposed to do, they're blind to what this all means, Jesus must reveal himself. And when he reveals himself, he reveals the purpose of all this. He reveals his commission for them, his calling for them, what you're supposed to do now. And that's what, that's what John says this is, right? This is a revelation of Jesus. scriptures we see, and not only in the scriptures, but in our hearts and our lives as well, it is, it is, it always seems to be, and it always is, that it is Christ who first comes to his own, rather than his own recognizing him for who he is. That's always how it is. His people, though they should know better, though they all of the scriptures up to this point have spoken of who the Christ is and what he is going to be doing and what's going to be done to him and what they should do afterwards. All of this has already been explained to them ad nauseum, and yet they still don't know. And instead of Christ forbidding them, instead of Christ saying, you idiots, because he's, he's done that in the past, right? Like, you of little faith. No, he, he comes to them. No matter how undeserving they were, because how many times do we have to explain it? But it's Christ who first comes to his own that brings about a true faith, a true sight, a true belief in him. Rather than his own, these disciples, you and I, it's not us who first come to him and say, hey Jesus, look how much I believe. Look Jesus, look how much faith I have in you. No, it is Jesus who brings about our faith, not our faith that brings about Jesus. And indeed, they do not know. These disciples, they are blind. They do not see still, even now, because, uh, and we can see more of this as John, this is kind of his final use of the dark light motif. Throughout the book of John, John has used this symbol of dark and light, night and day, to, uh, excuse the irony, illumine, uh, this concept that indeed, without Christ, you are in darkness, intellectual darkness, spiritual darkness, 
You cannot see and you cannot know when you are in darkness. But when you come to the light, the light that came into the world, as John explained all the way in John chapter 1, the light that comes into the world, when we look towards that light, everything starts to make sense. And so we see his final use of the dark light motif here because they go fishing. And just like our sister Esther Cho will tell you, when's the best time to catch a crow? It's at night. When's the best time to go fishing? It's at night. And yes, just practically speaking, you know, the best time to catch fish is at night. That's why they were out there at night. But I think the reason why John specifically points out that, points out in uh, verse, verse three, right? They went out onto the boat, but that night they caught nothing. I think that's significant. Right? Because the very next verse, in verse 4, says, Just as the day was breaking, Jesus. Right? That night, they caught nothing. The day was breaking, Jesus. And in the darkness and blindness of their hearts, apart from Christ, is, that what, is what that means, right? In the darkness and blindness of their hearts, they can do nothing. These seasoned fishermen cannot catch any fish. Symbolism. But with Christ, they can. And this harkens back to what Jesus said in chapter 15. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Indeed, they were still in the blindness and darkness of their hearts. So, so even though they were hanging out with Jesus, you know, they saw Jesus, they saw the resurrected Jesus, they saw the empty tomb, and yet, because they still not really see who Jesus was, they could not do anything with regards to their spiritual call, to their life call of making Jesus known to the nations. And, and this net, full of fit, this empty net full of no fish, uh, is simply a symbol, simply a sign of what is taking place in their hearts. And John continues, just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Again, they don't know. And yes, it was still dark because, you know, it's like when the sun's starting to come up. And yes, they were a hundred yards away. Yet, we must take note that indeed, they do not know. We must take note of their lack of knowing. And indeed, we cannot go and follow Christ's commission for us, Christ's mission for us, our calling as his disciples, as people who believe in him, as people who have put their faith and trust in him. We cannot go to where Christ leads us if we cannot see the Christ who calls us. We cannot go anywhere with our spiritual walk, our spiritual journey. We, can't, we cannot make progress in our spiritual life if we do not see Christ for who he rightly is. And we must see Christ, indeed, we must see him rightly for who he actually is, rather than what we imagine him to be, what we want him to be, what we desire him to be. Because if we see Christ for who he is, who he really is, rather than what we want him to be, then we will see that he is everything that we could have ever wanted. 
his disciples for a long time. They've seen this guy in, in the picture of who they wanted him to be. This guy who would take up a sword and overthrow the oppressive Romans so that they could have a Jewish nation again. But when they finally see Christ for who he really is, they realize that they have so much more than just a nation. And so when Christ reveals himself to the disciples and when he reveals himself to us, what is being revealed? What is being revealed is that in our blindness, Christ gives us sight to see him for who he really is. And when we see him for who he really is, that is when we can fulfill our calling and commission as his people. And who is he? What is Jesus going to reveal about himself in this passage today? Well, the first thing he reveals about himself is his awesome and his terrifying power. And the second thing is his kind and tender fellowship. And so point number two is our commission in Christ's power. Verse five, Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And this is very similar to the call of Peter in Luke five, right? Uh, Luke five, Peter's been fishing all night, didn't catch anything. Jesus comes and says, hey, throw your net out on this side of the boat. And Peter's like, master, we've been fishing all night and we didn't catch anything. But because you have said so, I will do it. And many people have commented, is he talking sarcastically? Is he actually being faithful? Who knows? But he does it, he catch a buttload of fish. And then, and upon seeing this, Peter confesses, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And Peter obeys uh, Jesus' call in Luke 5, and Jesus demonstrates his omniscience, his omnipotence, Peter's response to that is, I am such a sinner. Before you, I am a sinner. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And Jesus responds to him, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And so this has happened already, and yet the disciples do not recognize him when Jesus says, Throw your net out on the right side. It sounds like, you know, because. When you're in that kind of profession where like you can either fail miserably or succeed a lot, you know, I'm sure you get a lot of backseat drivers. So I'm sure that they've heard people say to them, like, hey, how about you just try this? Like, don't you hate when people say the word just? They're like, oh, have you tried just doing this? Like, come on, like, yeah. But, um, <laughs> you know, it sounds like another backseat driver, but so why, why they decide to listen to this guy who don't, they don't even recognize, right? It's just some random dude 100 yards away saying, hey, children, you call them children. It's like, hello? Can you be any more demeaning? Uh, he says, hey, children, throw your nets out on the right side. I don't know why they listen to him, but they do. And I guess maybe, like, what do they have to lose? And so the verse, uh, the scriptures continue. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, John, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And now, now that Jesus has repeated what he has done before, it is, it is now unmistakable that this man in John 21 is the same man who demonstrated the same omniscience and the same omnipotence as the man in Luke 5. Indeed, Christ reveals his power 
to the disciples. And in revealing his power to the disciples, he reveals also his divinity. He reveals also his identity. He reveals his personality. Jesus reveals his power to the disciples in this way. So how has his power been revealed to us? Well, in much the same way, Jesus reveals his power to us, you and I, in the passing of darkness into light. In the passing of our spiritual ignorance into a spiritual knowledge. Into a passing of our once empty nets into a net made full by the grace and love of Christ. What does that mean? It means that the power of Christ that fills fishing nets is the same power that raises dead hearts to life. And let me be clear, our, our hearts before we know Christ, they are not dying hearts. It's not like Jesus threw out, threw out like a life, uh, life tube and was like, hey, grab onto this because you're drowning. No, we're not drowning before we met Christ. Before we met Christ, we were a thousand yards underwater. We were on the ocean floor. We were dead in our sins and trespasses in which we once walked. And Christ, the power of Christ, has taken that and the dry bones of Ezekiel and raised it to life. The power of Christ is the power to overcome sin and death. It is the power to pursue now as new new hearts, new lives, is the power to pursue godliness and holiness. It's the power to make all things new. And this power in our commission as disciples is now granted to us. 2 Peter 1.3 His divine power has granted, uh, granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and essence. Romans 8.11 The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Jesus from the dead, also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And so you and I, we are imbued with the power of Christ. We are imbued with the same power He demonstrated when He filled those empty nets. And just like Peter in Luke 5, this power should fill us with a holy fear. We should be filled with the holy fear of the Lord. Because like Peter, if we truly come to know who Christ is in his power, what he has accomplished by, by his work on the cross, what he has accomplished in your life, that you were dead, but he made you alive. Not dying and like gave you medicine. He made a dead man, a dead man, come back to life. And upon hearing that, upon knowing that, it should fill you with holy fear because it should cause you to come to grips with your utter humanity and your utter depravity and your sin before this holy and almighty God. And yet, at the same time it fills you with the holy fear of Peter in Luke 5, it should also fill you with a holy joy. Because it causes us this gospel truth that indeed this powerful God has chosen not to use his power to destroy but this power he has used to raise me to life. It should cause us to run towards our Savior just like Peter and John 21 in our passage 
throwing himself into the sea and swimming towards that Christ. Because our holy fear and our holy joy are both rooted in the same glorious thing, the person of Jesus Christ. And I, and I wonder, do you know this person? And does this person, does he indeed strike fear into your heart? And does he strike joy into your heart as well? Uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I think, uh, you know, for those who are considering marriage, but just also in your uh, typical relationships, uh, that was a terrible intro for the story, but uh, I, my wife is over there, right? And I have to admit to you that when I cook for my wife, I have, and I don't, I don't want to call it a holy fear or a holy joy, but I definitely do have a sense of fear and a sense of trembling when I cook for this woman. Why is it that I feel that? Why is it that I experience that? Is it because when I cook for her, I am fearful of her potentially judging me for what I, what I made? Of her rejecting what I have created for her? And I, and I will say, no, it's not. It's absolutely not it. My fear of, of my wife when I cook for her is not founded upon rejection, but it's founded upon a desire for her enjoyment. My fear is, when I make this food, I say to myself, man, I hope she loves this. I hope that this is the best thing that she's ever eaten. I hope that when she eats this, she smiles. I hope she's full. I hope she has enough energy to you know, take care of her daughter well. That is the fear of this, of my relationship with my wife. And in that fear is also joy. That in my cooking for her, <laughs> there, there is this loving fear and a loving joy that indeed this is going to make her, you know, this is going to fill her and it's going to make her smile. And that is such a, compared to the fear and joy we have in Christ, that's nothing. Because when our fear of the Lord, our fear of, what is the fear rooted in? It's rooted in, does my life bring joy to the Lord? Not, oh man, like if I mess up, he's gonna, he's gonna smite me. But no, does, does this, I, I hope that, that my offerings and my sacrifices and my, my working out of my salvation and my godliness and my holiness, I hope that it is pleasing to God. Not because it, it buys me acceptance into his family, but because he has already accepted me. Because he has already called me his own. He's called me his son and his daughter. And in that fear is a joy. Wow, I get to serve the Lord. And so he commissions us in his power to live a life of holy fear and holy joy. And finally, he commissions us, oh, I'm over 30 minutes, but he commissions us with Christ, his fellowship. Uh, even though the demonstration of his power would have been sufficient, probably, for their continued obedience, what does Jesus do? Right? He demonstrates his power and he goes, all right, now do this, 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 this. He does do that. Later, next week, we'll talk about it. But in between that, what does he do? He invites his disciples to first sit and eat. Verse 9, when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Isn't it interesting that uh, Jesus doesn't say, hey, 
bring the fish, I'm going to cook it, and we'll eat together. No. Jesus already had the charcoal fire going. He already had fish on there. He already had bread on there. They were getting all toasty and nice. And then they brought the fish. He says, hey, all that fish? Wow, we can eat even more. Before they even have fish to bring, Jesus has prepared fish for them to eat. In the end, when we think about our holy fear and our holy joy and us bringing ourselves before Christ and our trying to live out this godly, holy life, in the end, it's not really about the fish that they brought. It's not about the fish that they brought to Jesus, even through His power, right? And, and through the power of Jesus, we too can live out godly, holy lives, right? It's the power of the Holy Spirit that convicts us to, to be godly. And yet, it's not about the fish. And it's not about our godly life. In the end, I shouldn't say it's not about it. It's, it's not... It doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't end there. Because indeed, it's the fellowship that they share with Jesus, this relationship that they have with Jesus, because through the demonstration of His power, they have come to recognize Him as their Savior, and as their Lord, and as their friend. And even the things that they can accomplish, like catching that butt-ton of fish, has only been done through His power. The power that longs, not just for their obedience, but for their relationship, for their love, for their devotion. And likewise, all the Christianese things we can do, it's only possible because of the power of Christ in us. It's only possible because of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And what is that work meant for us to do? Is it meant for us to turn, is it meant for, to turn us into some autonomous, obedient robots? Maybe. But... I think firstly, it's meant to bring us into closer relationship with the God who has called us by name. Consider uh, the story of Mary and Martha, right? Uh, in Luke 10, he writes, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. As we consider uh, all the responsibilities of not only in our lives, but our Christian lives, to serve, uh, serve out the, our calling as you know, students or employees or whatever, um, have we ever stopped to think that all of this is not meant for the things themselves, but it is meant for us to consider, in the words of the Song of Solomon, my beloved is mine. And I am His. Jesus' grace and His fellowship goes before our work. His love leads the way before our devotion, and His tenderness comes before our obligation. And that is who our Jesus is. That's who my Jesus is. And so, as Jesus' disciples, as, uh, as I call praise to Him, as Jesus' disciples, we are called. We are commissioned.
We are commissioned to recognize him for who he really is and the fullness of who he is and the fullness of his divine power. The power that fills us with the holy fear and holy joy that is only possible because of his tender fellowship with us that invites us to sit with the one for whom our soul sings. Uh, I invite you now to uh, come before this Lord in prayer.